That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, a joint podcast from The China Project and Caixin Global. We bring you the most critical business and finance news from China. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast, part of The China Project. Happy Year of the Rabbit to all of you who celebrate. We are bringing you the most critical business and finance news from the world's second largest economy. On this week's episode, the IMF upgrades China's growth forecast following the country's exit from zero COVID, China's top securities regulator rolls out new IPO rules, Chinese EV maker Xpeng's flying car unit wins approval for testing, and a rumored meeting between Jack Ma and the head of a Thai conglomerate shakes the Hong Kong stock market. But before we jump into that, this just in, the U.S. State Department has indefinitely postponed the trip that Secretary of State Antony Blinken was scheduled to make to China this weekend over a Chinese balloon spotted earlier in the week over parts of the northern U.S. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said that the balloon had inadvertently drifted and was not a spy balloon, but rather a scientific observation balloon used primarily for meteorological research, and expressed regret over the intrusion into U.S. airspace. A U.S. spokesperson said Friday that while the U.S. notes the statement of regret, he nonetheless called it a violation of U.S. sovereignty and said, We've determined under current circumstances it would not be productive to visit Beijing at this time, with another spokesman adding that this issue would have narrowed that agenda in a way that would have been unhelpful and unconstructive. No date and no conditions have been set so far for another visit. On Monday, the International Monetary Fund raised its forecast for China's GDP growth this year to 5.2% from a 4.4% projection made in October. The organization took into account a faster-than-anticipated recovery from the country's full reopening. However, the expected rebound will moderate in 2024, the IMF said, and over the medium term, growth will likely fall below 4% amid shrinking business dynamism and slow progress on structural reforms. The Washington-based lender warned that this year, downside risks include a stalling recovery in China, which could have potential spillovers to the rest of the world, including supply chain problems. China's economy expanded 3% in 2022, the first time the country's growth fell below the global average in over 40 years, the IMF noted. 
waves of COVID-19 cases, along with a crisis in the property sector and sluggish market confidence, took a toll on economic activity. By contrast, the IMF estimates global growth will slow to 2.9% in 2023, citing central banks tightening monetary policies to fight inflation and heightened geopolitical tensions, including the war in Ukraine. Speaking of China's reopening, the country will fully reopen all its borders with Hong Kong and Macau starting February 6th, that's this coming Monday. The Chinese mainland will drop existing quotas and scrap COVID test requirements for inbound travelers from the two special administrative regions as long as they have no overseas travel history in the past week. Group tours between the mainland and the cities will also resume. The move contributes to Hong Kong's campaign to entice visitors back to the city after three years of tough pandemic curbs. It's a further relaxation from early January when quarantine measures were lifted. Moving on to a major regulatory update that is going to affect China's $13 trillion stock market. The China Securities Regulatory Commission, or CSRC, the country's top securities regulator, is planning to roll out a registration-based IPO system to the main boards of the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges. Under this more market-oriented IPO mechanism, the CSRC will take a back seat in the vetting process since it will no longer decide on pricing or approve listings. Instead, its role will become more supervisory. Under the proposed rules announced on Wednesday, markets and investors will have a bigger say in deciding on the value of companies seeking to raise funds on the main bourses and make the IPO system more transparent. The mechanism will also put more responsibility onto the shoulders of sponsors and the stock exchanges to ensure applications comply with regulations. It's worth noting that this registration-based IPO system is not something new. It was actually first adopted by Shanghai's NASDAQ-like star market in 2019 when it was set up. It's since been rolled out to two other platforms focused on technology and startups, Shenzhen's Chai Next in 2020, and the Beijing Stock Exchange when it was launched in 2021. Analysts said the change may trigger a new wave of IPOs on the mainland, especially companies in emerging industries, adding to the more than 5,000 companies listed on the three exchanges. Do head over to SicingGlobal.com for an explainer titled Seven Things to Know About China's Latest IPO System Overhaul. The story delves into the details of the mechanism and its significance to investors, companies, and China's stock markets. Moving on to the latest in China's tech sector, autonomous trucking startup Too Simple has denied a report that three of its leaders could be facing a possible U.S. economic espionage investigation. The U.S. Justice Department has been urged by representatives of a national security panel to consider the charges against Two Simple's two founders and its current CEO, the Wall Street Journal reported Tuesday, citing people familiar with the matter. The recommendation stemmed from concerns that the group was improperly transferring technology to Chinese startup Hydron. Hydron, which develops hydrogen-powered trucks, was founded by Two Simple's co-founder Chen Mo. Two Simple, 
said that the allegations made by the anonymous sources are not consistent with their discussions with the national security panel called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, which is led by the Treasury Department. Backed by Chinese social media firm Sina, Too Simple operates about 100 advanced autonomous trucks, mostly in the U.S. and China. Yet the company has caught the attention of U.S. regulators, which have placed the firm under a lengthy national security probe targeting its data operations and China links. Chinese EV maker Xpeng's flying car unit has won a special permit from China's Aviation Administration to begin manned tests for its electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle, or EVTOL vehicle. Getting the permit is a key step in Xpeng Airat's aircraft research and development and moves the firm closer to its goal of mass-producing flying cars for the consumer market. The Xpeng X2 electric flying car is driven by eight propellers and can carry two people. It can fly to an altitude of 1,000 meters and at a maximum speed of 130 kilometers per hour, which is around 80 miles per hour. However, the vehicle can't be driven on the ground. Luxury EV maker Lotus Technology has inked a deal to merge with a special-purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, thus allowing the firm to gain a NASDAQ listing. The deal will give Wuhan-based Lotus Tech a valuation of 5.4 billion U.S. dollars. The company is jointly owned by Chinese automaker Geely and Malaysia's Atika Automotive. The company plans to start delivering its first fully electric hyper-SUV, Eletra, in China in the first quarter of this year, followed by the U.K. and EU markets. And last, a rumored meeting between Alibaba co-founder Jack Ma and Thailand's richest family has shaken the Hong Kong stock market. Shares of a Hong Kong-listed subsidiary of Charon Popcon Group, or CP Group, surged early this week after a Hong Kong newspaper reported that the Thai conglomerate's senior chairman, Danin Chiravanant, and CEO Supachai Chiravanant had met with Mr. Ma. The subsidiary, Cha Thai Enterprises International, was trading at $6.98 Hong Kong dollars or 90 U.S. cents at one point on Wednesday morning, more than eight times its opening price on Monday. Ma's movements are always of interest to the media. He has stayed out of the public eye since regulators in China launched a crackdown on his business empire in late 2020. The meeting appeared to be at least the second between Ma and the Chiravanant family since last month. Local media reported that the Chinese billionaire was spotted at a Michelin-starred restaurant in Bangkok with CP Group's Local media reported that the Chinese billionaire was spotted at a Michelin-starred restaurant in Bangkok with CP Group's chairman, Supakish Chiravanant, in early January. Ma was reportedly on a trip to visit CP Group. The meetings have triggered market speculation on potential cooperation in the agricultural sector between the two sides, as there have been reports of Ma inspecting multiple overseas agricultural projects in recent years. Let's turn now to Kelly Wong from Caixin Global and kick around some ideas about China's football, or as Americans call it, soccer, 
and what Beijing is trying to do about the decidedly lackluster performance of its national team. Hello, Kelly, and welcome to the Caixin Cynical Podcast. Thank you, Kaiser. It's great to be here. So I've asked you here to talk about soccer in China today, and specifically soccer's development in schools in China and the country's you know, efforts to train a new generation of young players.、Uh, really interesting stuff. So let's start with some background. When did the country launch this campus soccer program? The country's sports and education departments began an initiative to develop youth soccer on campus almost 14 years ago. The National Youth Campus Football Work Leadership Group was officially launched in April 2009, and by October that year, 44 pilot cities were named to promote campus soccer through activities such as training and competitions. So, Kelly, how much money has been invested so far to promote soccer in school? So at first, the general administration of sports pulled 40 million yuan, which is around six million U.S. dollars, from the sports lottery fund each year for camp soccer, and then the amount was increased to 56 million yuan per year in 2013. And then in the following years, the Ministry of Education gradually took over the task of promoting youth soccer in schools. Between 2015 and 2017, the ministry invested almost 650 million yuan in the development, which spurred an additional 20 billion yuan of specialized funding from local governments. So, where did the money go specifically, and what has been achieved so far? So, during the three-year period from 2015 to 17, more than 50,000 soccer fields were built across the country. And then, in the eight years from 2014 to last year, the number of schools featuring soccer education grew sixfold to 30,000. And then, by mid last year, 55 million students in China have been participating in soccer activities, said a former education ministry official last July. That means one out of every six students in China is involved in soccer events. Wow, that's impressive. Yes, and Beijing hoped to use extensive student participation to form a large base of keen soccer players, which would help pave the way for the country to become a global contender in sports. However, after years of huge investment in the sport, the results weren't that great. China's men's national team ranked 80th in FIFA's latest listing among 211 competing countries. And it has been two decades since China qualified for the World Cup. It's worth noting that the women's team are doing much better at 14th place on the FIFA ranking. So, why haven't the nationwide efforts achieved the expected results? Well, that's a complex question. And first of all, the money invested from the central and local governments were mostly used for infrastructure, such as building soccer fields. But after that's all done, we realize there is a serious lack of professional coaches. Caixin spoke with a number of coaches who said they were surprised to see math teachers joining soccer coach training programs, and some would even show up in suits and leather shoes. And a scholar within the campus soccer system who carried out field research at hundreds of these soccer schools estimated that it's possible that only one tenth of these so-called soccer feature schools were seriously carrying out related activities on campus. And he said that some only wanted the label in order to get more funding. I see. And secondly, Chinese social norms value a college education over a soccer career, and as such, any athletic achievements have become just a mere bonus for most families. 
the current system attaches too much importance to other purposes, such as whether an athletic certificate gained through winning matches could boost a student's chances to a better college. And experts say such a mindset is hardly good for developing campus soccer because it has put other interests before the children's own interest. As one expert said, the motive for developing campus soccer should be to make students fall in love with the sports itself. Well, thank you for all of that, Kelly.、Uh, that was really insightful. You are most welcome, Kaiser, and thanks for having me.、And、I look forward to seeing you again. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Syndicate Business Brief is produced by Kaiser Guo and by Kelsey Chung, Li Jingbing, and Bertrand Tio at Caixin Global. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global. Thanks to Spring and Autumn for the music. Check out some of the other great podcasts on the Syndicate Network, like the amazing China in Africa podcast and China Corner Office. And for daily news and views, make sure to subscribe to Access from the China Project. Again. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.